I'm also uh, thrilled to be uh, here. It's a special treat uh, to be uh, joining the uh, festivities, um, uh, but at the same time, uh, marking the contributions of, I think, undeniably uh, a, a fundamental maker of contemporary uh, geography, a person who um, has had such a, a, a powerful effect on the field. Um, it's difficult for me, at least, uh, to think of anything that I know that hasn't been shaped uh, by uh, Doreen's work. And certainly uh, all of my time since uh, graduate school has been shaped in one way or another by an engagement with things that she's uh, saying. Um, and so I think she's been very important uh, shaper of geography, and I mean that in the broadest possible uh, sense of the word, uh, not just as a, a defender of a certain position within the academic division of labor, if you like, um, but rather in the sense of the development of a geographical stance uh, in shaping a project uh, within and beyond uh, geography, uh, which has influenced many of us in the field, uh, uh, which is simultaneously an intellectual and a political uh, project. So I think I don't think any of us can uh, really separate out those uh, those parts of it, uh, which gives uh, geography a purpose in in a sense. So it's certainly way beyond the normal uh, questions of uh, uh, organisation of academic life. Now, in, in, my, in my corner of this sort of endeavor as an economic geographer, um, economic geographers have been, become prone to ask um, all sorts of self-contemplative uh, questions. Uh, over recent years, uh, we were asking ourselves, uh, what is economic geography for, um, analytically and normatively, what is it for? Uh, if economic geography didn't exist, uh, why would we want to create it? Um, and I think the best answers to these questions uh, will all engage uh, in Doreen's uh, work and life and practice. Um, and so um, I'd still make the argument that there is a need uh, for a certain kind of economic geography sh uh, shaped by the kinds of uh, work that Doreen's been doing. And she does this very much as a uh, public geographer as well, um, a public geographer who was uh, doing those kinds of things uh, long before the term uh, public geographer was in circulation, uh, and pursued a kind of public geography which is built on enduring commitments uh, social, to social and political engagements, uh, which are right across the board. Um, uh, from soup to nuts, uh, as we would say, uh, rather than uh, just selective uh, commitments. So given the, the reach and the depth of Doreen's work, I mean, it's, I think it's impossible uh, to cover the entire field in the few minutes that we've got, and I'm very conscious of the fact, looking around the audience here, uh, that we could almost randomly pick people out of the audience who could do a better job of this than, uh, than I. Uh, but I'm just going to try and pick up two uh, themes uh, from, from Doreen's work, starting off with, uh, with spatial divisions of labor and uh, at the other end of the bookend, uh, which I think uh, is where Jane is going to take over uh, with the World City book and just talk about some things that have occurred between those uh, books separated by about a quarter of a century. Uh, now, it's become a staple observation that the Spatial Division of Labor uh, book uh, marked a paradigm shift in economic geography, as uh, Ash has also just emphasized. 
Uh, now, economic geography has become rather prone to turns, uh, especially in the last uh, decade or so. Uh, but I think the, the turn or the switch or the paradigm shift that was associated with the arrival of spatial divisions of labor was the most profound one in, uh, in the history of the modern uh, discipline. Everything seemed to be changing at the time that this book came out in 1984. Uh, the old certainties of economic modernization, the old certainties of Keynesian economics, um, all of these were being drastically brought into question. And it was clear, I think, that we needed different kinds of economic geographies uh, to cope with, explain, and see beyond uh, the world that we were living in at the time. And so, in, in that sense, I think the Spatial Division of Labor book um, encapsulated a radically different approach uh, to economic geography. Um, he dealt with theory differently, dealt with method differently, dealt with politics differently, and many other things. Um, uh, theory in uh, what I suppose was usually described as industrial geography uh, before this book uh, had largely been implicit, if not inert, uh, drawing on uh, location theories and so on. Um, and suddenly, you know, after the Spatial Divisions of Labor book, uh, the construction of theory became a continuing and central problem uh, in the field. Uh, and not just the imposition of a rigid framework from Marxism or elsewhere, uh, but the creative deployment of an adaptive, reflexive form of theory construction, and a sense that theory had to be perpetually reconstructed in, in light of events and politics and so on. And I think that was liberating and demanding at the same time. I think it just opened up the questions dramatically uh, compared to uh, before. Uh, so it made a big impact in terms of theory. Its impact in terms of method, I think, was no less uh, significant. Uh, method was no longer just a set of techniques uh, to be mastered, as it were, and then applied, uh, but a problem space defined by politics, positionality, and the challenges of different forms of grounded explanation. All of these things uh, became uh, part of a wider set of methodological questions uh, with a distinction uh, on the line there. Uh, where production of data is a social process uh, about the interrogation of competing theoretical explanations and the sifting of those and so on. Um, and politics pervaded this entire process as well, uh, not least by virtue of the dramatic uh, social and material costs of restructuring as they were being experienced at the time in the UK and elsewhere. And so the restructuring uh, project, the intellectual project of restructuring built, I think, around this book in many ways, uh, was, was really organically connected to those conditions and to the politics of, of that uh, time. And in that sense, um, is partly a collective social product itself. Uh, maybe we can all claim a little of, uh, a, little of the, a bit of the uh, contribution to this kind of book. Uh, um, and it wasn't just an object of disengaged loan scholarship. I suppose that's what I'm trying to say. I think it came out of a, a firmament. Um, so uh, now going back to 25 years ago, uh, in the midst of all of this firmament, um, you know, I was a humble uh, graduate student at Manchester University uh, working lonely on my project. Uh, studying Thatcherite employment policy. Uh, and for us in Manchester at the time, you know, this book was our Bible. Uh, it came along a few months after I started uh, my graduate studies. Uh, and you know, even though we all realized we weren't up to emulating this kind of project, I think it just emboldened us in lots of ways uh, to, to strike out in different directions as economic geographers. It gave us license, we felt, 
to explore a transformative and uh, expansive project of economic geography, um, released from those uh, narrow bounds that uh, had been, uh, that had caged it really up until the 1970s. So the Spatial Divisions of Labour book and the questions of industrial restructuring uh, which animated it and were inspired by it uh, dominated the field through the mid-1980s in ways that um, you know, maybe today seem unthinkable. Uh, but I don't think it ever really monopolised the terrain. Uh, almost as soon, as soon as it arrived, it was spawning uh, old, other reactions and, and different developments in, in the field. Financial geographies spun out of one side, engagements with feminist geography spun out of other conversations and so on. So immediately uh, it was proliferating, uh, the, the field. Uh, so it was an extremely exciting period, I think, for all of us uh, to be a part of. So I think for what the Spatial Divisions and Labour book did for me uh, was to establish the foundations uh, for relational forms of economic geography, which um, you know, I, I still can't think outside in, in many respects. I mean, that's completely shaped the way uh, I think about just ev about everything. And as Ash just called it, uh, established a mode of thinking in many ways, which has been extremely uh, productive. Uh, it also established a way of, in, of understanding the interconnections of spatial inequalities and reconstituted uh, power relationships. And many of those kinds of approaches have become, uh, if you like, baked into the cake of the way in which uh, economic geography has been practiced uh, ever since. Um, one of the interesting questions for me, though, uh, especially as I started to teach in uh, sociology after I uh, moved to North America uh, nearly 10 years ago, uh, was the extent to which these argue, spatialized arguments have traveled into the rest of the heterodox social sciences, which in many respects might be potentially receptive to them, uh, but I think we've still got things to do in, in reaching out in some of those, uh, in some of those ways. And I'm, I'm struck in, um, when I was teaching in Madison, uh, I would always have uh, the sociology students uh, reading this book, and time and time again, um, you could almost see the light come on. You know, they'd not really been exposed to spatial ways of thinking before, and it was you know, almost this sort of eureka moment. Aha, you know, I see how you do it. Um, on the other hand, um, uh, Eric Olin Wright, a friend and colleague of mine in Wisconsin, who Doreen has a long conversation with in this book, uh, and I've co-taught with several times over the years, uh, still doesn't get it. And uh, I've tried as a heart mightily to convince Eric about spatialized forms of thinking, and uh, yeah, I still think he kind of operates in a, in a very different sort of way. Uh, extremely bright guy, uh, very much engaged with many of the same issues, but the, this form of spatial relational thinking is um, not something I've been able to persuade him about. So I think there's still uh, terrains to, uh, to conquer, if you like, for these uh, forms of spatialized um, economic thinking. So it raises for me some, a series of questions about what's left to do uh, in the field of heterodox economic studies generally. It seems to me that with some very uh, interesting alliances have been struck up, especially with sociology in, in various parts of Europe, uh, but there's a lot left for, left for the rest of us to do uh, in working with economic sociologists, with comparative political economists, uh, with the post-autistic economics movement, which uh, in many respects uh, isn't paying any attention to arguments in geography yet. Yeah, maybe even to the new geographical economics. I think there's an entire zone of heterodox economic studies um, which uh, has, has yet to have a full conversation with this kind of work. 
And if this question is about the intellectual legacy of spatial divisions of labor, I think there are parallel questions about the political uh, lessons of the 1980s and, and the time that this book arrives. Uh, arrived. Um, this was also a time, of course, when Doreen was working uh, along with the GLC and with GLEB, um, and some work I've been doing lately has involved me rereading the uh, London Labour Plan and a lot of those uh, documents. And what I'm really struck with uh, reading that work again from the early 1980s was the ac acute self-awareness of the, uh, the fact that local authority powers in that context were being pushed creatively to and probably beyond uh, their limits. Uh, the idea of local economic development strategies in many respects was, came out of that kind of cauldron. Uh, and you, you saw there in the, in the work of the GLC and the other municipal socialist authorities uh, an attempt to position their projects strategically and symbolically um, against Thatcherism. Uh, they knew they, that the transformation of the metropolitan economy of London was beyond the reach of you know, the parts of local authority funding that were available. Uh, but to develop forms of practice uh, beyond simple protest was, I think, very much shaped that kind of project. It was also about stretching the very meaning of economy and thinking about economy in, in radically different ways, caring economies, alternative economies to the defense sector economy, and so forth. Um, so, you know, that wasn't necessarily realistically going to transform the entire metropolitan economy of London, uh, but it did place uh, these municipal socialist interventions in very creative tension, I think, with market-led forms of restructuring. Uh, it's established a series of demonstration projects, the ultimate outcomes of which we'll never know, uh, thanks to Mrs. Thatcher's uh, interventions in the mid-1980s and the abolition of that tier of government. Um, but they were constructed, demonstration projects constructed on a really hostile terrain, uh, with a, informed by a very acute reading of that terrain. And so I wonder what are the lessons of these experiences uh, for us today. Uh, if we look around uh, today, the global justice movement is seeking to uh, shape a polycentric alternative to hegemonic neoliberalism. Um, in the uh, world of economic geography, uh, the diverse economies uh, project of Gibson Graham and uh, many uh, others is trying to develop new economic ontologies rooted in local practices, projects built in place. How should we think about these relationally? What configurations of extra-local economic relations might be enabling of such projects? What's the terrain across which such projects are being uh, developed? How do we harness the chicken and egg question of the relationship between alternative economic imaginaries forged at the local level and what you might call the rules of the game uh, that shape interlocal competition and so forth? And I think there's a whole series of questions that we could ask, um, if, in part by reflecting on that early 80s period, but in lots of other ways. You know, what mix of utopianism and realpolitik uh, do we need at the present time in the development of alternative economic visions? So this brings me to the second book, uh, and I've got to be quick on this one. Uh, World City, uh, that just came out a year or so ago, uh, provides some of the resources for thinking through these questions, I think especially in the context of the present crisis. And Doreen's work's always been addressed to the most urgent questions. I think it's fairly obvious what the most urgent questions are now. So uh, in, the, in the 
minute I've got left, I'll, I'll just turn briefly uh, to those uh, contemporary questions of the current economic crisis. Yeah, one of the chapters in this book is called Who Owes Whom, uh, which in many respects is the, probably the most important question of the present time. Who owes whom in the current uh, global crisis? Uh, now the system of financialized capitalism, which is analyzed so acutely in, in World City, has encountered a moment of a, an ambiguous crisis. Uh, what are we to make of this? Yeah, the dominant, dominant narrative is one of collapse and desperate efforts to resuscitate uh, the credit system to restore growth at almost any cost. Uh, but there's a palpable sense, I think anyway, of that we're flying blind in this process. Uh, compared to the early 80s where there were struggles over uh, quite acutely articulated alternative visions of the economy, uh, at the present time the people in control or the levers of power don't have, seem to have a blind idea about what they're doing. Um, and so I think we're in a very different sort of terrain uh, at the moment. And I think we're in need of alternative economic visions in a much more urgent way uh, in many respects than even in the early 1980s. So much of the discussion on the left, I think, isn't getting us very far at the moment in, in, in squaring up to the challenges of the present crisis. Um, uh, Eric Hobsbawm and, um, and Naomi Klein, for example, are talking about the, this as equivalent to a Berlin Wall moment. Um, and I can see the appeal of that metaphor. Um, it's, it's a tempting one to use, uh, but I want to suggest that surely it's entirely wrong. It's based on entirely the wrong spatial imaginary of the present time. The Berlin Wall notion implies a binary separation of alternative systems or worlds. The complete failure of one system uh, being followed by the colonization by the other. Now, I don't think that's an apt metaphor for the present time, although, again, I can see the temptation of using it. Uh, Neoliberal globalism is not a singular and totalizing system. Uh, it's not likely to collapse like a house of cards in one big explosive moment. Even if the ideology is largely bankrupt now, even if Chicago school hubris uh, won't be what it has been in the past, I think we need to be just as worried about the work of technocrats and so on that are busily re-engineering the system. Uh, we need to be just as worried about embedded practices of neoliberal uh, 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 governance and so on. The other question about the Berlin Wall that metaphor I would say is what's on the other side of the wall uh, today? Uh, which as I think is one of the most sobering questions. Um, certainly we're not looking at a situation where a pre-organized uh, aggressively expansive alternative is waiting on the other side of the wall as it was in 1989. Um, we're in a different historical and ideological moment. So the question that World City poses, which is the one I'll end on, is what are the global responsibilities of places like London? And you might add New York. I mean, isn't that one of the most important questions to be asking at the present time? It seems to me to be viscerally uh, urgent. And beyond localized efforts to reform and reboot the system, what new forms of international and interurban relations can we anticipate in the wake of this crisis, which surely is going to be a period of unprecedented restructuring, not just a very bad recession followed by a recovery of a very system, of a similar system. We're looking at a process of restructuring. And how do we head off all of the near-term threats to progressive alternative economic visions that are out there? 
the dull compulsion of competitive relations intensified by desperate attempts to reclaim market shares, beggar thy neighbour strategies on the resurgent, in intensified inequalities, um, and so on. So progressive projects will certainly need uh, their beachheads in this hostile environment, uh, but they can't surely just be enclaves. We've got to figure out ways in which a progressive sense of interlocal relations uh, can be constructed. So if ever there was an urgent need for an outward-looking progressive sense of place, I would argue uh, today is that. Um, letting the financial technocrats of London and New York resign the system uh, is the last thing we should be doing at the present time. Um, but this has, a, has to go way beyond, I think, the populist attacks on fat cat salary packages and so on to problematise the social form of restructuring itself and the relationships between places as well as within them. Now, these are questions for the rest of us. <laughs> if, if, there is a me if there is meaning to the term of Dorian retiring, maybe it's now, now, now our turn to ask these questions and uh, give her a break uh, from them for a while. Uh, I think they're questions for all of us at the present time. But Dorian's work directs us, directs us I think, to the right places to look for answers, uh, which, of course, will be stakes and sites of struggle in the coming years. In, in the heat of the present crisis, above all, we need a sense of perspective. And I think Dorian's work uh, always gives us this. It shows how we can use history and geography uh, critically and dialectically as a means of, of uh, uh, opening up forward-looking and outward-looking perspectives. And I think that's what we urgently need at the present time. From the Open University. For more information, go to www.open.ac.uk forward slash use.